Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. Good morning, church. So glad to be with you, and uh, I'm excited to be here, but there's a tinge of jealousy uh, where Matt and the team are because Czech does hold a special place in the hearts of me and my wife, Deborah. Uh, We went to the Czech Republic uh, a long time ago and and spent uh, about 12 days at the same place where your team is, and when Matt told me he was going, I was like, oh my goodness, like, I want to go. He's like, well, I was going to ask you to preach at Venice. I'm like, well, I guess, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's a special place to us, great stories. It's actually where Deborah and I got engaged. Uh, so Czech has a special place in our heart. So I'm excited and been praying for and, like, just feverishly watching his stories to see what's going on. So excited to follow that over the next few days. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to dive straight in. And I'm going to be honest with you, like, we got a lot to get through today. Uh, and I want to make sure that we try to get to all of it. So, Let's dive right in because I think we can dispense, like you guys know me, I know you, it's all good. And if you don't, we can talk afterwards. But I want to spend some time in the word of God. And being a pastor, it, first of all, it's the, one of the weirdest jobs in the world. It's so strange because like you can't separate the business side of things and the professor or the professional side of things and the personal side of things. Like I'm friends with the people that I go to church with, we do life together. But then sometimes like, you know, we do other stuff together. Uh, and it's weird because like, I get to do fun stuff, and it's technically part of my job, uh, but then also I deal with people in some of the hardest days of their life. It's really weird. And, and ministry, and, and just life in general, like being a disciple, like it's, it's this weird mixture of faith and dealing with God and trying to understand who God is and what he expects from us and, and what we can expect from him, but also dealing with other people. Like you can't separate like being a, a follower of Christ from Interaction with him and also interaction with other people. Like, you can't do those things separately. And you introverted people in the room is like, I don't want to. Like, you got to deal with people. That's just life. And, and understanding that is part of what I do as a pastor. And, and to do that, I feel like I have to have some level of understanding of culture. And culture is a really funny thing. It's something that, that, that moves really slowly over long periods of time, but it also shifts really quickly. Like it's, it's a paradox, like things change. And for those of us who have had some like years put on our life a little bit, right? Like we understand how, like just how fast culture seems to be moving. But at the same time, it seems like change just comes so slowly. And then there's nuances within culture. Like there's American culture that's different than, than European culture. And even within that, it gets strange because there's Southern culture. And guys, I don't know if you've ever lived outside the South, like we're weird, we are very particular about things, like mayonnaise. At my house, the only mayonnaise is, is Duke's mayonnaise, which is from South Carolina, just saying. Greenville is different than Randleman. We have like 17 Starbucks. Y'all guys got a Bojangles. It's different. North Carolina, South Carolina are different. Like, and I told the first service, like, does anybody else, like, with me, like, when people outside of this area of the country lump us together, it makes you mad? Like, hey, go to the Carolinas. Like, no, we are different. We both have good things about us. 
We both have things about us that we don't want, you know, like the crazy we sometimes let out. But we are two different types of people, right? And I'm not going to say which one's better out loud. We don't need to get into that. Um, there's some things that I, we just don't need to go there. But, but life is different. Like culture is just weird. And people can approach life in this very diverse and rich ways that are so much different than the way we approach life, the way that we look at life. But at the same time, people in general are predict- predictably similar. And I don't pretend to be an expert on culture, but I am trying to be a student of culture, trying to have an understanding of, like, not just how the world works, but why. Like, why do we do things the way that we do them? And what influences, what external influences forces us to kind of to think the way that we think? And one of the things that I've learned, and I'm, I'm continuing to learn, I'm not arrived there yet, is some of the general truths about people. Like some of the things that, like, with, with some exception, are generally true. And one of those things is something I kind of want to start talking about, and then we'll kind of find our way through Scripture together. And that's this. Generally speaking, most people, when they have the choice between doing something and nothing, will choose nothing. For the most part, generally speaking, we as people want to figure out the easiest, simplest, with the least amount of effort way of doing pretty much anything. And look, I'm not saying that as an indictment. Like, I am absolutely a subscriber to the work smarter, not harder mentality. I, I understand it. Like, if it's going to take, if it can take me 15 minutes at an hour, I want to figure out how a way to do it in 15 minutes. And if those of you who have kids, you know this to be true at supper time. Because you're like, hey, you need to finish those mashed potatoes. And what does your kid say? Well, how many bites do I have to take? But do you want ice cream? Well, how many bites do I have to take in order to get what I really want? I mean, I thought it was 11, and she still does this. Because we as people want to figure out how to, to get the maximum impact with the minimum effort. Like, if, if you, even if you work a, a job, especially a corporate job, like, this is a philosophy. We want to get the, the most with doing the least. We want to figure out how to be the most effective and efficient we can be. And like I said, this is not an indictment, but when we think about this in the context of how we interact with ourselves, with Jesus, and ourselves and others, like, is this really the best way? A few months ago, my wife and I, and we co-pastor Parkside Church, and so we co-teach. Uh, and sometimes she preaches, sometimes I preach, and sometimes we preach together, which is a ton of fun. And we decided several months ago that we were going to teach through the Sermon on the Mount, which in hindsight was amazing and amazing stupid because it's one of the most intimidating portions of Scripture to preach because it's called the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by the greatest preacher that's ever preached it. And what am I going to do to add to that? It's Jesus. Just let him do his thing and he'll take care of it. But what's funny is that we started that process to figure out, okay, how are we going to teach our people about some of the most important and practical things that Jesus taught? What ended up happening is a change in my own life. And I know that's supposed to happen, but this was very real for me. And as I began to study this morning, I noticed something that started to challenge my thinking. And he starts in in Matthew chapter 5, so if you're not there, get there, okay? And if you're not taking notes, shame on you, start taking notes. I can say what I want to because I get to go home later. He starts out in Matthew chapter 5 with what we call the Beatitudes, which is some of my favorite parts in Scripture. Like, it's so, it's so inspirational in nature. Like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I love that because it's like, it doesn't say blessed are those who achieve righteousness. Like, Jesus says, look, I will give you some measure of credit. I will give you some blessing for trying. 
Like, just strive for it, and, and I will be there for you. Blessed are, the, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I love that. And so the first part of Matthew chapter 5 talks about that. And then he talks about being salt and light. He gives us this really great illustration about how we as believers, as disciples of Jesus, are, are meant to interact with the world, how we're supposed to be uh, just flavor the world, right? And if there's too much, it gets salty and nobody likes it. I, I love the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to turn our attention a little bit deeper into, into chapter 5. In fact, we're going to go through the rest of chapter 5 together. And this turn that he makes, starting at verse 17, it challenged my thinking and it's called me to shift the way that I am as a disciple. I mean, it's fundamentally changed the way that I feel like I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and he interacts with me and thus how I interact with other people. And I think the best way to understand it is, like I said, just to walk through the rest of the chapter together. Almost line by line, section by section. So let's start together in verse 17. This is Jesus talking. He's, you know, I imagine him sitting on the side of a hill and just addressing these people who, who began to understand and, and hear who Jesus is, all right? And he's getting ready to lay it out for him. And he starts with this. This is very important. Verse uh, 17, chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according, accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, underline that, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand a little bit of context here, like who Jesus is speaking to and kind of where we are in the course of history. I mean, these were people that were ready for a big change, but what they thought was going to be the change was not what Jesus was here for. These were Jewish people that had been taught the law, the letter of the law, since birth. In fact, there are many of them that memorized the law, every jot, every tittle, every punctuation, and it was important to them to know the law. And they were looking for a savior that would come and take off that yoke from them to say, look, we need a different way to live. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you that, but not the way you think I am. I'm not here to take the law away. I'm here to be the capstone. I'm here to complete the law. I'm here to help it make sense. And that's what Jesus starts talking about right here. And the problem that the Jewish people had because of the, the Pharisees as the gatekeepers of the law that browbeat everybody into submission, they didn't have an understanding of what came behind the law, the why behind it. They were stuck in the letter of the law. And Jesus said, I don't want you just to know the letter of the law. I want you to understand the spirit of the law. Now, that context is important because we're still going through the same thing today. We want to know exactly what we need to do. We want to know where the line is so we can stay behind it. Well, I don't, don't want to live over here because I know this is an okay, so I need to know where that line is. Understanding and acknowledging and having knowledge of the law is fine, but we need to understand why. We need to understand the spirit behind it. Jesus makes that turn 
in verse 20 says, you need to surpass the Pharisees and the teacher of the law. We need to go beyond the letter of the law and understand the spirit of the law. And here's the spirit of the law. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus doesn't just call you to a way of life. He calls you to live the best way. Think about that for a second. Like, if you grew up in church, like, grew up going to Sunday school, and I know we don't talk about that much anymore because we don't do it anymore. Like, we, we, growing up in these moments where you learn all these things, the Ten Commandments and the do's and the don'ts and the rules and the regulations, like, those things aren't bad. They're there for a reason. But if you don't learn why, then they don't mean as much. And when we get stuck in, in this way of life, I, I have to live this life a certain way. I have to follow all the rules. When Jesus says, no, hold on, time out, time out. Know the rules, that's fine. But understand, I'm trying to get you to understand how we need to live the best way. Instead of living a life to the letter of law, doing just enough to get by, Jesus is calling to fulfill the spirit of the law by choosing the best way, by choosing the best way. Jesus spends the rest of this chapter walking through this contrast between the law and what it looks like the best way. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this contrast of what the law says and then what Jesus says is the best way. And I still believe with all my heart in 2022, in like the hottest month on record in the whole entire world, it's still absolutely relevant today. So grab your Bibles, grab a pen or your little notes app on your phone, and let's walk through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 together, starting with verse 21. It says, You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with their brother and sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to their sister, brother or sister, Raka, which basically means you idiot, is answerable to the court. I've said worse to my siblings, so I, need, I think I need to go talk to them after service, ask for forgiveness. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that, you have, that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus says here in this passage, uh, the law says, do not murder. That's the law. That's the, that's the floor. That, that's the bare minimum to get by. That's the law. What Jesus says the best way is, deal with conflict. Deal with conflict. Now some of you just got like... Like, you just tightened up a little bit, right? You nines on the Enneagram, like, uh-uh, no, we ain't going here today. Deal with conflict. Conflict is a funny thing because, it, like, if, if there's someone in your life that says, well, I like to deal with conflict, they need to go see a therapist today. Like, nobody likes to deal with conflict, but it is necessary. It's something that's utterly unavoidable in this life because of human relationships. But most of us would rather run toe first into a coffee table than have a hard conversation. No matter how awkward it is. Like, do you guys, this is going on on the internet, right? I don't care, it's fine. Like, you ever, you got that family, like who, they they don't just have the elephant in the room, they like like 10 of them in there. It's like, you can't talk about them, right? I'm, 
I may or may not have married into something like that where it's like, and I'm like, I like to go and like, like kick the door open, like, let's talk about it. This is like, nobody likes to deal with conflict. And if you do, you've got some other issues, but it, it reminds us here in the scripture that it, it's absolutely necessary. It says in verse 23, therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, remember, and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them. This teaches us that living uh, in unresolved conflict impacts our relationship with Christ. Did you hear that? Living with unresolved conflict in our life impacts our relationship with Christ. You know that conflict isn't the problem. It's unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict leads to resentment, and resentment breaks down relationships every single time. It never says once in this book that you should not have conflict. In fact, sometimes it leads us to conflict. But unresolved conflict is the issue. When we're living with unresolved conflict in our lives, it restricts the movement of the Holy Spirit around our lives. Some of you walked in today and you just feel like, man, I just feel this blockage and I don't know what's going on and I, I, I want to grow closer to Christ. I want to be a better disciple. And you're like, I don't know what it is. Well, it's, it's a phone call that you need to make. It's when you need to let that pride drop and say I was wrong. For all you eights in the room like me, like that is the, the worst words in the world to say I was wrong. But I think that's why verse 25 says that's why we need to settle matters quickly. And I think what's also important is what's not being said. Jesus doesn't imply or say straight out that we should avoid conflict. A few years ago, Deborah and I were at a camp, and, and we were talking about this with a group of leaders, like youth pastors and stuff like that. And someone said something that like has bore a hole into my mind. And that's this. Conflict is the price we pay for intimacy. Think about that for a second. Conflict is the price we pay for intimacy. Think about the most important relationships you have in your life, the ones that mean the absolute most to you. Every one of those, every one of those, they've had conflict. And the reason why those things are so valuable to you now, those relationships are so valuable, is because you've seen your way through the other side. Have you ever had an argument with your spouse or someone that you're really close with and you finally actually get it dealt with, like you actually resolve it, and you go, oh, don't you feel closer to that person? Absolutely. Maybe what Jesus is saying, the best way to live means that we deal with conflict when it arises. Are we having fun yet? Yeah, we'll get ready. Buckle up. Here we go. Number 27, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye or your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. The law says do not commit adultery. Jesus says the best way is to fight for your purity. Fight for your purity. Now, this law, like do not commit adultery, it, it's generally held in and out of faith, like in and outside of, of what it means to be a Christian that adultery is wrong. It's destructive and immoral. So like, you don't have to be a believer to say, yep, I agree with that. Adultery is wrong and it hurts people. But Jesus suggests that the immoral and destructive behavior happens long before someone has an affair. 
he takes a huge step back from where the law is. And he says, if you have lusted, you have committed adultery in your heart. I find that to be some of the most convicting words in scripture. Because by that definition, how many of us have committed adultery? It got quiet. I mean, that, that's tough. That's tough for me to stand up here and say, because it's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've made those mistakes. For those of you who aren't married yet, or maybe that's not God's plan for your life, like, you, you're not exempt from this. Some of you may be sitting there like, hey, I don't have to listen to this part. Like, I'm not married, and that's not me, so I don't have to worry about that. But adultery is being intimate with someone you're not married to. And intimacy isn't just physical. It's physical, it's relational, it's emotional, and it can happen in your imagination. Some of you wives are kind of poking your husband like, you need to listen to this. Like, this is, this is I saw. I'm like, you think I don't know, but I know. But some of you ladies, like, y'all went and saw the Thor movie for the wrong reasons. I'm just saying. Like, this is not just a man issue. It's a people issue. And here's the thing. Scripture talks about it is not just an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. We tend to, like, think that lust lives in our mind. But it, it, it I'm telling you, things go into these orifices on our face. They enter our mind. They sink into our heart. So maybe the best way to live and how we fight for our purity is pay attention to what we allow into our mind so it doesn't sink into our heart. You want to talk about the health of your family, the health of your, your, your own mental health, like all that stuff, pay attention to what you allow into these receptors that God has given to us because they affect us more than we know. We say, well, I can't control what comes to my mind. That's a lie from the enemy. You absolutely can control that. Now, I understand like things flash in our head, but Paul talks about how we take those thoughts captive, but we've got to stop looking at, at that moment, and we've got to say, what are we putting in? My youth pastor, when I was growing up, he used to tell me all the time, and it stuck with me, trash in, trash out. If you put trash in, it's going to come out. And we're like, so says, I can handle it, it's fine. But it's a heart issue. We have so much influence over what comes over into our hearts and our minds. And that's exactly what Jesus is referring to in those next two verses. If your right eye calls you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand calls you to stumble, cut it off. And I remember hearing this as a, as a, you know, a young believer. And I was like, like, is this self-harm? Like, like I'm, am I supposed to like literally like pluck my eye out and cut my, no, this is not self-harm, but it's asking an important question. How far are we willing to go to remove ourselves from temptation? How far are we willing to go to say, I don't want that to be a part of my life, that I don't need to stand on the, on the precipice of sin, all right? I can step back here and say, I can see what I need to see from here, I'm good. How far are you willing to go? I think it's interesting, too, this example that Jesus uses, because I think there's two little nuances about it that are really important. First of all, he says, when you gouge out your eye and you cut off your hand, like, that's going to hurt. It's like sometimes making the right decision, It hurts. It hurts. And also, it's going to cause us to make some adjustments. If you were to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand, you're going to have to figure out new ways to do things. And maybe it's time for you in your life to fight for your purity, to live the best ways, to figure out some new ways to do things. 
Maybe, maybe protecting your marriage is more important than watching that show on Netflix that caused you to stumble. Maybe the best way to live is to make purity a priority. Verse 31. It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The law says if you divorce, it must be official. Like you've got to go through the proper channels. Jesus says the best way is to honor your spouse. Now, I want to take a quick second here. And I, this is a really difficult portion of this, this scripture to, to try to figure out because of a couple of things. One, the pain of divorce has touched most of us at some point. My parents are divorced. I grew up in what's called a broken home and whatever that means. And I know a lot of us, like, or all of us know someone who has been divorced or maybe we've been divorced ourselves. Like, it's painful. I've never met anyone in the history of my life that said, hey, that was fun. I'd like to do that again. Right? I've never met anyone who, like, walks down the aisle saying, well, like, you know, like, we'll see how this goes for a few months and then we'll go from there. Like, it's, it's hurtful, it's painful in every situation. And the other side of it, too, is I think the church has minimized that hurt sometimes, and we haven't done a good job of teaching through moments like this. And I think we look at verses like this from the proper perspective. We look at it on the other side of divorce. Uh, divorce. We look at it on, on the hurt side. And I think what Jesus is saying, he's trying to call attention to the front side. He's not saying, hey, how do we deal with divorce on the back side? Let's, how, to, how do we prevent things like this from happening? And how we prevent things like this from is honoring God through honoring our spouse. Now, honor is an interesting word, and it's very intentional. It's not just about obedience. It's not just about making them happy. It's about making choices that, that, that command respect that the relationship deserves. How do we honor our spouse? And, and like I said, it's difficult, but it, it's really important. But if we figure these things out, and we learn how to honor God and honor our spouse, I believe with all my heart, then divorce gets taken off the table. This is a bold statement that, that may be hard for some people to hear, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'll say it again. If we're doing everything we can to honor God and to honor our spouse, divorce goes away. It's taken off the table. Deborah and I celebrated 15 years of marriage um, this past November. And there, you know, my, my wife and our, there's nothing that we can't talk about. There's nothing that's too taboo, right? But the only thing that never gets talked about in our house is divorce. It is a curse word in our house. We don't talk about it. We don't joke about it. We don't make fun of it. It, it is a devil in our house because we don't want to give the enemy a foothold at all for those thoughts entering our mind. That is one of the ways that we honor one another is that we don't even, oh, hmm. We've been around couples who are like, just make the jokes like, keep on playing, I'll leave you. And it's like, no, like, why would you open that door? Honor your spouse. And honoring looks like the individual taking responsibility for their part and not blaming other people. This is something we need more just in our world is for people to say, that's on me. I made mistakes. In 20-something years of ministry now, I've sat across from, from couples who are in the struggle, right, 
And I, not one of those couples have I ever said that was 100% their fault and 0% their fault. There is shared responsibility in every situation. Sometimes it's time to honor one another by saying that's on me and not playing the blame game. The best way to live is to bring honor to our choices. We got through that. We're good. All right, we're good. Verse 33, again, you have heard it said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything, excuse me, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The law says don't break your oath. But Jesus says the best way is to embody a godly character. To embody a trustworthy character. And trustworthiness is something that seems to be in short supply in the world that we're living in today. Like, man, how many of us just have trust issues like, we look at people in circumstances and like, mm, I'm not sure about that. And the reason that that's the case is because we all have been hurt by someone who has said, I'll be there, and they weren't. And it would be easy for us to keep going down that road because it makes us feel good. Like, when, when we realize that it's someone else's fault for the way that we feel, but that's inaccurate or it's incomplete. As much as someone has done that to us, we've done it to others as well. We've told someone, hey, I'll be there, and we weren't. And that's not a fun thought. There are times when I tell my daughter, Annabeth, like, hey, I'll be there, or I'll do something. Like, when we get home, we're, gonna, we're watching through all the Marvel movies together, and that's, that's interesting with an 11-year-old, because she never stops talking. Um, but, I, hey, we're, tonight we're going to watch, we're going to finish Spider-Man. We're going to do that tonight. And she looks at me and says, you promise? And I get so frustrated because I'm like, why do I need to add this extra layer of security to what I just said? I told you we would do it. But when I get real and I turn the mirror around and I look at myself and I say the reason why she asked me to promise is because I've broken promises before. I've told her we would do something or, do, or I would be somewhere. And for whatever reason, I, I didn't. I have to learn how to, to better embody a trustworthy character if I want the respect that trust earns I have to do respectable things. Jesus gives us clear instructions, all that we should be able to say, and it be okay, is yes or no. Like our word should be good enough, but we can't erase the past. We've made mistakes. We can't go back and change them, but we can start right now to rebuild trust. It may take time, but that's okay. We can't change it. We can just start right now and say, I'm going to have a trustworthy character. And here's the great thing about building a trustworthy character. It opens up some incredible doors in our lives. Some of you have been looking for a promotion at work, and you've been waiting on it. Build a trustworthy character. Those doors will open. You want to have a greater intimacy in your marriage, uh, physical intimacy, relational intimacy, however, content, whatever way you want to use the word, build a trustworthy character. Those things will come. When people learn that they can trust those, doors will begin to fly open. The best way to live, from Je for according to Jesus, is through high character. High character. Verse 38. You have heard it said, 
an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And as someone who grew up in the ghetto, like, I'm still trying to figure this one out. And if anyone wants to sue you or take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The law says you get what you deserve. Jesus says the best way is to give grace away. Now, we love to talk about grace at church. And we usually think about it from this perspective. Give it to me. Come on. We love to bask in God's grace. I need it. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Like, give me the grace. It makes us feel good. It's like, it's like a spiritual tanning bed, like I've ever been in a tanning bed. We love it, but we rarely think about showing grace. And as believers in Jesus Christ, this should be something that we should be marked by. Like, it should not take people long to interact with us to experience grace. We love to get it. We're terrible at giving it. And this was especially convicting to me because I think about like when I'm driving around 85 and I, you got your part 85 here and I got my part 85, right? And they're both messed up. And someone like cuts you off and you're like, what are you doing, you idiot? Rocka. <laughs> I'm glad you guys were listening earlier. But like when, when we're the person that accidentally cuts someone off, we're like, oh, that's my bad. That's my mistake. I wasn't paying attention. Like we, like we, we want the grace. We're, so what's the measure? Like, how do we know? How do we know what kind of grace you're supposed to give? Well, the grace that you hope to receive is the grace that you should give. You want people to be understanding of your circumstances and understand that, like, you didn't mean it and it was taken out of context, it was a mistake, or, like, you didn't really mean it that way. But, like, so quickly we start making assumptions about other people. 95% of the conflict in the world is miscommunication, misunderstanding. And we tend to think, like, people always have malcontent or evil intentions, we need to take a step back and give grace. We need to, to extend grace. How do we do that? We have to learn how to hold everything we have with an open hand. Everything. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, give your shirt and your coat away, go the second mile, do not turn them away. It, it calls us to remember that everything that we have, our very lives are not ours. There's nothing that you have that you weren't given by the assistance and the grace of God. And when we learn how to hold everything, even our very lives with an open hand, the things that we have that we think are so important just aren't as important anymore in light of the grace that God has given us. And it creates space for grace to move around in our relationships. And Jesus says the best way to live is to choose grace. All right, last section. And this is, this is really important stuff. Verse 43. You've heard it said, love your Lord, love the Lord, love your God and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what, what are you doing more for others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The law says care for your people. 
The Jews were great at this. Jesus says the best way to live is to treat all people like they're your people. All people like they're your people. Can you imagine a look on the face of the Jews at the time when Jesus says it? When Jesus says, hey, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Remember where we are in history. Like at this point in time, the Jewish people had been under Roman occupation for 60 years. Yet another oppressive uh, regime that was holding them down. And Jesus says, pray for them and love them. I mean, this is really hard truth for the Jewish people to hear at this time. The enemy, they were looking for a conquering Messiah to come reestablish Israel to its proper place on the world stage. The enemy wasn't at the doorstep. They had moved into the house. And Jesus says, love them, pray for them. And the Jewish people, they wanted eye for an eye justice. They were ready for things to change. Jesus says, pray for them, love them. But then Jesus twists the dagger in verse 45 when he says, that you may be children of of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. The pride of the Jewish people is that they were God's people. They were chosen and set apart. And in that verse, Jesus levels the playing field and says, all people are my people. All people are my people. Take that context 2,000 years ago and you plop it right down in 2020 where there there are people who are walking around this world today saying that we are God's chosen people. We are set apart. And we were waiting for him to come make it right. And we, and we look at all these little divisions across our world and say, well, well, they don't agree with the way that I think and, and I don't agree with the way they think and so they just need to go on. We need to unfollow them on social media. We, we need to spew all these things out. And just say, no, 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 no. The best way to live is to treat all people like they're my people because they are. Like, I understand there are standards, there's things we have to stand up for what we believe. I get that. But never at the cost of showing love and grace to people who are far from him. It's time to stop playing this game and understand that the best way to live is to see people as God does and treat them with equal affection. And stop living like we can't hold two things in our hands at the same time. You can absolutely, with all your being, disagree with the way that someone lives their life. You can. But you can also, in this hand, hold unimaginable, deep, authentic love for them. Jesus did it all the time. Jesus does it with you every single day. And we can't use it, well, Jesus is Jesus, I'm not Jesus. Like, No, Jesus calls you to be like him. And the ways he called you to be like him. Jesus didn't do that in his divinity. He did it in his humanity. So it's time to start putting away all these selfish and trite arguments and focus on the things that matter. Things that affect eternity. Not the next election cycle. Or the next whim on Facebook. I'm to start treating people like they're all God's people. And as we wrap up, we've gone through like 31 verses together. I know it's a lot. But in the context of Jesus' teaching, it was just a few minutes. And in those few moments, he introduces this radical concept to a group of people who had been taught to live by a very specific set of standards. And who just wanted, just like, if I can meet those criteria, I'm good. And we're still living that way more than 2,000 years later. We want to know what the rules are. We want to know where the boundaries are. 
so we can meet those expectations. And Jesus says, forget those expectations, blow right by them. Because he's not calling you to be good enough. That is not the call that Jesus gives through scripture. It's not good enough. He's called you to full life. John 10, 10, I've come so that you may have life to the full. And you can't live full life with a bare minimum mentality. If you have full life, you gotta step into that fullness by choosing to live the best way. He's done his part, he's crafted a plan, he's given you everything you need to live to that end. Are you going to step into living the best way? Let me pray for you. Lord, I do thank you so much for your word and its power. And I'm so thankful that you don't shy away from hard truth. And, and I apologize to you where I have done that. But I believe with all my heart that, that, that taking these steps to choose to live the best way can lead to some incredible things, to find victory in ways that we've never seen before. Greater than we can ask or imagine is what your word says. So Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that, that these things would sink into our heart and they would bring about change. I, I love moments like this. I love coming and meeting people and living in the community and worshiping together and all that good stuff. But, but let's not kid ourselves like, Lord, you call us to live life differently when we have an encounter with you. We can't have an encounter with you and leave the same. So I pray that you would convict our hearts on, on some way that we could bring change in our life, even today. I love you. In your name we pray. Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.